This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We were in the middle of chapter 6 Zohar, the Kabbalah, has two names for the other side, for evil negative forces. One is Kalipa, which is shell, and the other one is in Aramaic called Sitra Achra. Sitra Achra means the other side. So the moment we define what is holiness, anything that's not holy is automatically belongs to the other side. There's no neutral, there's no in between. Either you're with us or you're, or you're against us. Either you're connected to Kedusha, you're holy. Anything that's not holy automatically belongs to the family, the category of klipa. So in order to understand what is klipa, first we have to define what is kedusha, what is holiness, what is the meaning of holiness, definition of holiness. Once you understand what holiness is, then automatically anything that's not holy automatically is klipa. And now he defines what the definition of holiness is. On the top of page 103. The side of holiness is nothing but the indwelling and extension of God's holiness. Now, God dwells only on that which is surrendered to Him, whether the surrender is an actual one and visible even in that surrendered being's external aspects, as in the case with the supernal angels, whose entire being is constantly and openly surrendered to God. The definition of holiness is wherever godliness is felt, godliness is present, godliness is transparent, that is the definition of holiness. Of course, God is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. So what do you mean when something is holy? A holy place. A holy time, Shabbat, holiday, a holy person. God is everywhere. Everyone has a mitzvot, everyone has a spark. Otherwise, he couldn't exist. There isn't a single aspect in this world. Every stone has a spark, has a divine energy. So what's the meaning of holiness? The meaning of holiness is when godliness is transparent. You can see through, you can feel it, you can sense the presence, you can connect with it. And therefore, only certain places are holy. A synagogue is holy, the place is holy because it's dedicated to Hashem. Uh, a Torah scroll is holy. A person, a tzaddik, a holy person. Someone who consciously is connected with godliness. A holy time, Yom Kippur, Shabbat, holiday. It's a time when you feel holiness. The day itself is an energy in the air, something. On that day, you feel holiness. And then when you combine all three holinesses, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the holiest Jew, the high priest, entered into the holiest spot on earth, into the holy of holies. And that's when your divine spark is available, is accessible to you. That's why it's a holy day, Yom HaKadosh, the holy day. Eretz Yisrael is called Eretz HaKadosh, the holy land. 
Because it's a place where godliness is palpable. You can sense, you can feel godliness. So wherever you can feel godliness, that's holy. God is everywhere. But everywhere else in the world, it's like opaque. You can't see. It's covered up. It's klipa, shell. It covers up on what's inside. I don't see what's inside. I don't feel. I don't sense what's inside. So what is the vessel, the vehicle, to receive holiness, to receive the Shekhinah, to receive God's presence? You have to be a vehicle. You have to be a vessel. What's the vehicle? What's the vessel to receive it? What's the conduit that allows that holiness to be manifest, to be felt? Bittel. Bittel means no. egolessness. There is no I. There is no ego. There is no sense of I. So angels are holy. Angels have no ego. Angels don't, don't, don't earn a living. Angels are not motivated by money. All they do, all day and all night, is praise Hashem, praise God, serve God. 24-7. They don't sleep, they don't eat, they don't drink. Their whole being. Angels are like light. Light feels its source. Light is connected to its source. It's obviously connected to its source. Light is, there's no independent being. Light is egoless. Because the light knows it's not independent. It's entirely dependent on its source. And it's constantly connected to its source. And it's nothing other than its source. And it points to its source. If you see light, you know the source. You see, how do we see the sun? We see the light, we see the sun. You can't have one without the other. You can't see the sun. You can't, there's no light. Light is nothing other than its whole being, its whole essence is that it's connected to its source. And it's not independent. An angel, a malach, an angel is like light, pure energy, pure light. And it senses, it senses godliness. And therefore its entire being is consumed by godliness. There's no, there's no I. There's no independence. There's no disconnect. There's no split. So an angel is holy. And in this world, the Jew is holy. A non-Jewish professor once stopped a rabbi in Jerusalem. He says, define for me what a Jew is. And then he says, I'll tell you what a Jew is. The non-Jew is telling the rabbi. He says, a Jew is someone who's holy who doesn't even know it. Doesn't even know that they're holy. Because a Jew is connected. A Jew has a holy soul. A Jew has that potential for self-sacrifice. A Jew has that connection with the, with the divine, that divine connection that is at the very core and essence of each and every Jew. Deep down, in the moment of truth, a Jew would make the ultimate sacrifice rather than disconnect from, from Hashem, from Godliness. He cannot be disconnected from Godliness because that's his core, that's his essence. And that's a definition of holiness. The definition of holiness is that it's not about I. A Jew is egoless. It may come to surprise many Jews but at the essence, a Jew is eagles. The ultimate motivation, deep down, for every Jew, it's not I. The ultimate motivation is, what can I do for God? Not what can God do for me, what can I do for God? 
That's my mission. What's my purpose? What am I here for? Mm -hmm. What am I here to serve? What am I here to accomplish? The goal is not I. It's all about connecting with God. And this is the ultimate drive and motivation of a Jew. Deep down. Whether he's aware of it or not. Whether she's aware of it or not. Deep down, that is the Jewish soul. That's what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish neshama. If we don't recognize it, the non-Jew recognizes it. As Hitler, Yomach said, he says, the Jew is the conscience of the world. He's giving us all a guilty conscience. Let's destroy the Jew, and then we can live as we please. Every Jew. He didn't only go after the rabbis. He went after the baby. He knew as long as there's one little Jewish baby left in this world, he knew the power and the force in that little Jew. Because that little baby, his very being, his very essence, inherent, innately, the very moment he's born, his being, his essence is godly. He's the conscience of the world. He reminds the world that there's a God in this world. And the world is not a jungle. We have to answer for our behavior, we have to answer for our actions, we're responsible for our actions. So even if we don't recognize it, we don't appreciate it, we don't realize it, due to ignorance or for whatever reason, it doesn't change the reality. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Because a Jew has that holy spark, that pentelit. So we have the potential for holiness. So an angel has actual, actualizes potential. An angel is holy. His whole being, his whole conscious being is the awareness of God. That he is a light and God is the source. And he's constantly connected to the source. And he's constantly... Um, created from the source and there's nothing other than the source like a fish in water fish is swallowed up in its in water in its life source the moment it leaves water it dies an angel is swallowed up in its life source in godliness in the godly energy and it's consciously connected with that godly energy so an angel is like a, a an emissary an angel the word angel malach means emissary the angel is an energy that's connected to its source. Or the Jew who has the potential for holiness. Even if he doesn't activate it, but the potential is there. And therefore, a Jew is a vessel for holiness. He's a walking piece of holiness. He's a vessel for holiness. When a Jew does a mitzvah, something happens. It's not a ritual or a custom. You ignite something. Something real happens. You have the ability to take leather hide of an animal that you use for shoes. And when you write a Torah with it, when a Jew writes a Torah, he has the ability to make that parchment holy. A non-Jew writes a Torah, nothing happens. But a Jew is given that ability. Because a Jew has that holy neshama, that holy soul, so a Jew is a vessel, a vehicle for godliness, for the Shekhinah. And therefore, he has the ability to sanctify. Sanctify this world. Everything that he does, he has the ability to make it into a holy, transform, do a mitzvah with it, take a physical object, do a mitzvah with it, and make it into something holy. Because it's like fertile territory. When you want to plant a seed, you have to plant it on fertile ground. That's why the Jewish people are compared to earth. 
Hashem says, you will be to me like a desirable land. Because when you take a seed, if you plant it in, in earth that's not arable, nothing happens, nothing grows. But if you plant the seed in earth that, that's fertile, then something will grow. And the Jew is that piece of land. When a Jew does a mitzvah, something divine happens. If a non-Jew would do that mitzvah, nothing happens. Why? Because the Jew is that fertile piece of land. The Jew is like earth. Everyone steps on earth. Earth is egoless. The Jew has that quality of holiness, the quality of self-sacrifice, that quality of being God-centered instead of being ego-centered. And therefore, they are a vessel and a vehicle for the Shekhinah. Now, just like land, in order the seed, the ground may be fertile, and the seed will take root. But in order for the seed to take root in land that has potential, you have to plow the land, you have to sow the land. So too, a Jew has this holy spark, this divine spark. But in order to actualize the spark, you have to plow the land. The heart has to be broken. The Jewish heart is broken. Unfortunately, if, if it's not broken on its own, we have the tragic reminders that break, break a Jew's heart. What's going on today in Israel, there isn't a Jew in the world whose heart is not broken by what's going on. Um, every death is like, a, you know, hits home to each and every Jew because we're all family, we're all one, we're all connected. And when the heart is broken, when the, when the ground is plowed, then the seed takes root then we activate that godly spark we have within us. The potential is there, the pilot is there. But when the heart is broken, we turn up the flames, and then it becomes into a flame, comes into a torch, it gives off light, it gives off heat, it becomes productive. So every Jew has that potential. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Deep down we all have that spark. But it's only when it's ignited, that's when you can really stir up heaven and earth. That's when things start moving and shaking and things start uh, happening. So we, the potential is there. The potential for, for Jewish unity is there. But if it remains buried or hidden, it remains buried or hidden. So either the angels are holy and continue, or whether it is a potential... Or whether it is a potential surrender, as in the case of every Jew here below in the physical world who has the capacity for surrendering himself completely before God through martyrdom for the sanctification of God's name. As explained further in the Tanya, every Jew has the capacity for such self-sacrifice. In the face of an attempt to coerce him to forsake Judaism, he will willingly suffer martyrdom. Thus, every Jew possesses internally within his soul the potential for surrender to God whatever his external state. This potential, however, may reveal itself only in the act of martyrdom. Because he is surrendered to God, God's holiness rests upon him. So since he has a potential, therefore the holiness is there. Whether he's aware of it or not, the holiness is there.
A Jew is holy. No such thing as a secular Jew. Every Jew is holy. Whether he knows it or not. Everyone else in the world knows it. But he likes it. He likes it, knows it, acknowledges it. Some people... That's the biggest proof that they. That's the biggest proof that they have it. Did you ever meet a self-hating Irishman, self-hating Italian? Only a self-hating Jew. The biggest proof that a Jew is holy. You only deny something that's so real. I just heard the Adin Steinsaltz once met. You know, Adin Steinsaltz, famous rabbi, well respected in non-observant circles, and he met this famous professor in Israel, his friend. On Shabbos, he was walking to the synagogue. So the professor turns to Adinstein and he says, you know, you're probably going to Shul. He says, yes. So you know where I'm going? <laughs> he says, I'm going... Personally, I'm going for breakfast. I'm going to the only store in Jerusalem, at least then, that sold ham. To find ham on Shabbos in Jerusalem is very hard. So he found, that was his treat. Once a week he would go to eat ham in the morning. This is a Jewish professor? Jewish professor. All right. <laughs> he says, then I'm going to take my kids, we're going to go to the beach. And then for lunch, we're going to eat shrimp. <laughs> he says, and then I'm going to take them to the movies. And on and on. So Adam Stein just looks at him and says, you know, I'm jealous of you. <laughs> he says, because you, Shabbos means so much to you. You have such a relationship to Shabbos that you must eat ham on Shabbos. And you make a point of eating shrimp and make a point of desecrating the Shabbos and taking your family. I'll tell you the truth, Shabbos doesn't mean that much to me. <laughs> says, I wish Shabbos would mean that would bother me so much, would touch me so deeply that I have to do something about it. I don't know, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to them. <laughs> Today that Jew is, a, that professor is a big rabbi, an observant Jew. You know, he really hit home. He really got there. That was the truth. The self-hating Jew. You never find anything like it. The self-hating Italian. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. The self-hating Jew. Because they're so Jewish. It bothers them so deeply. <laughs> they think about it. They're obsessed with it. They care about it so deeply. So it's the biggest proof that they're holy. <laughs> it's the biggest proof. All the surrendering and all this, the biggest proof that the Jew has that holy spark. That is why our sages have said that if even one individual sits and engages in Torah study, the divine presence rests upon him. But when one engages in Torah study, the surrender, the godliness emerges to affect him on a revealed external level, since such study entails setting aside one's own notions and presumptions in order to understand and accept Hashem's wisdom and will as expressed in Torah. It is this surrender to godliness that causes the Divine Presence to rest upon the Torah student. The truth is, every time you study Torah, it really involves a little sacrifice. You know, a person could have easily spent that time indulging, indulging in his own pleasures and pursuits. And yet, he spends his time studying Torah. And he engages his mind trying to understand not, to, not uh, trying to understand Hashem's, Hashem's way of thinking. So it involves a certain sacrifice. Therefore, by revealing, by revealing that sacrifice, 
you're also revealing, activating that godly spark. So when you activate that godly spark, then there's a godly presence. You draw down Hashem's presence. So the Shekhinah is with you. When a Jew studies Torah, the mere fact that he's studying Torah, he already reveals the Shekhinah, he already brings down and draws down the Shekhinah, Hashem's presence. Because he's sacrificing himself and his own assumptions, his own way of thinking, just and puts it all aside for the sake of learning the way Hashem thinks and, and trying to absorb and understand how Hashem, Hashem's wisdom is and Hashem's will. So therefore, there's a level of egolessness that's involved and that automatically draws down, there's a holiness. So when a Jew studies Torah, there's a holiness. Even if you study alone, there's already a sense of holiness. Also, on each gathering of ten Jews, the Divine Presence rests, always. Together, ten Jews form a congregation of Israel, which is a fit abode for the Divine Presence. When ten Jews get together, even if they do nothing, even if they're not studying Torah, not praying, you have ten Jews in the room, it's already an event. There's a sense of holiness. Because you have ten godly souls coming together. It creates a new reality. It creates a new entity. And this is a phenomenon that only exists by Jews. The whole concept of community, the whole concept of congregation, is something that only exists by Jews. Because every human being is a world apart. Every human being is an ego. My ego couldn't care less about someone else's ego. I care more, more about my own pinky than what's ha- what happens to millions of people in Africa. What do I care? My pinky, it's the end of the world. That's human nature. You think the, the Christians, French Christians care less about the Christians in Lebanon? What do they care? But we're both Christians. Right? They're both Christians. What do they care? What does one have to do with the other? People don't care. Everyone lives in his own world. Everyone cares about himself. So you, don't, you, don't have, you have six billion people, you have six billion individuals. There's no connection. There's no real connection between one and the other. The Jew is unique, however. The Jew, you have a concept of all Jews are responsible for each other. All Jews are connected with each other. All Jews are one. There's an idea of a community. Ten Jews come together, you create a new entity, a community. Klau Yisrael, the Jewish whole. And the whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. The idea of community, that we're all connected on a level that transcends all of us put together, this is something that's unique to the Jewish people. Because of that holy spark. Because the essence of the Jew is that egolessness. The essence of the Jew is, is that we're not I-centered, ego-centered. We're God-centered. My entire drive and motivations is what can I do? How can I serve? What can I do for God? Because the soul recognizes and knows on the deepest level every fiber of its being, every bone in our body that there's no other reality but God. And therefore, there is not, nothing else but God. Therefore, we're all the same. What makes me Jewish is the Jew inside of me, the Jewish neshama, that holy spark. The other Jew has the exact same Jewish neshama. And therefore, we're all, we're all, we're all one and the same. We're all connected. Because we all have that same divine essence. Therefore, we have a concept of a community. So whenever there's bittle, whenever there's, there's egolessness, then you have community. But where there's ego, there's no real inner sense of community. Yes, you can have an external community. People can come together, do business together. People can go into partnership. But it's like people traveling on a boat. 
Everyone has a, has a different goal. Every person on the boat is there for a different reason. But in order to get to our destination, we all have to share the boat. We have to chip in. We have to work together as a team. But there's no inherent unity. It's not an inner unity. It's an external unity. We have to get to the boat. And therefore, we have to get to our destination. And therefore, for the time being, temporarily, we'll put our egos on the side and we'll all chip in together. We'll partner together. We'll work together. We'll be there for each other. But there's no inherent inner unity. Ultimately, everyone is for himself. So you can have alliances and you can have working relationships as your interests converge. But what motivates me? My own self-interest. Everyone is motivated by their own self-interest. And that's normal. That's healthy. that's That's the definition of a human being. A healthy, normal human being. A healthy ego. Nothing wrong with it. That's just the way... God created us. The Jew has something abnormal. A divine essence, a divine spark. A sense of holiness. A transcendent reality. It's totally egoless. Not motivated by self-interest, not motivated by ego, not motivated by I. What can I do to connect? What can I do for God? What's my mission? What's my responsibility? It's not something that we accomplish, we achieve. It's not a human accomplishment. It's something that we were chosen. God gave it to us. Mount Sinai. We inherited it from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, the Jewish soul. And therefore, there's an inner unity. There's an inherent unity. Jews are inherently connected. Externally, two Jews, three opinions. We're as different as they come. We can't agree on anything. Which is why in every, any language in the world, when someone says hello, what do you say back? Hello. Right? But what do you say in Hebrew? Someone says to you, Shalom Aleichem. How do you respond? Aleichem Shalom. You say one way, I have to say the opposite. <laughs> it's just the way a Jew's wires, the way a Jew thinks. <laughs> just, I'm not, not going to just repeat what you said. To be something original, different, different slant, different angle. Nevertheless, that's all external. Internally, there's an inherent unity. In moments of truth, like today in Israel, all the differences. There are no religious today. There are no non-religious. There's no right. There's no left. Except the loony fringe. But there's no difference. In moments of truth, there's no difference. There's an inner unity, an inherent unity, a genuine unity. And that's our strength. And the world knows it and they're envious of it. Because that unity doesn't exist anywhere in the world. The concept of community, the concept of, a, of ten, a minion, of a genuine community, a sense of community of Claudius world, that we're all brothers and we're all sisters and we're all connected and we're all responsible for each other, we all care for each other, and we're all there for each other. This is something that's unique to the Jewish people. Why? Because of that holy spark that we have, because of that that essence of holiness. It's not a project. It's not something you can create that's man-made. It's there. We just have to reveal it. So when you get rid of your ego, you put your ego aside, and you put ten Jews together, and they're all in the same room, and they're all sitting together. That inner core, that inner essence, that inner unity 
merges and surfaces, and Hashem Shechina is present. As he says, says elsewhere in the Tanya, in the Holy Letters, in the fourth section of the Tanya, that he heard from his teachers, in Magid and the Rebbe Shem Tov, that when ten Jews are present, even if they're not studying Torah, even if they're not praying, even an angel cannot be in their presence. An angel would be consumed by the holy fire that's present. We don't sense it, but it doesn't change reality. It's a holy event. Ten Jews together, it's a holy event. Imagine you have more than ten, I mean, more than ten. And if they're coming to learn, then they're coming to daven, how much more so, how powerful, how powerful that event is. Anything, however, that does not surrender itself to Hashem, but considers itself as if it is a thing separate unto itself, does not receive its life from the holiness of Hashem. Now that we know the definition of holiness, anything that's egoless, anything that's totally nullified before God, now we can understand the, the definition of sitra akhra, the other side. Anything that's not nullified before God, anything that's independent, that's egotistical, has a sense of I that's separate and disconnected from God, that is the other side. That's from the side of the clip of the shelf. Now, it doesn't mean that um, everything in this world receives its sustenance from God. Otherwise, it couldn't exist. So what do you mean something is disconnected from God? Something is split off from God? Everything is connected. But he says anything that doesn't surrender itself to God, it doesn't have the potential to surrender itself to God, that doesn't sense that it's nullified before God. That is Klippa and Sitra. The truth is that everything is nullified before God. Everything. But anything that doesn't sense it is automatically Klippa Klippa and Sitra Akhara. Because the... When we say that everything is God, there's no other reality but God, doesn't mean that the world doesn't exist. doesn't mean that the world is an illusion, the world is a maya. God created the world. It says so in the beginning of the Torah. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So God is creating the world and sustaining the world. The world is not a dream, not an illusion. It's real. So what does it mean that there's no other reality but God? It means that the world has no independent reality. The world only exists in order to fulfill its divine purpose, its godly purpose. Everything in this world was created for godly purpose. There is nothing in this world that was not created for godly purpose. Everything that exists is here just to fulfill a godly purpose. God created, He gave us a Torah, and He wanted, He had a vision for this world. It says in the Torah you should give tzedakah. So in order to give tzedakah, that's why God created money and financial markets and Wall Street journals and Forbes magazine and etc. Everything that God created in this world is ultimately to fulfill, to fulfill that purpose. So everything, everything has a divine purpose. So the definition of holiness is, is when a person senses that everything that exists in this world is here 
for godly reason. And the opposite of holiness, the other side, is when there's no sense of godliness. That's why we learned the other week, if someone eats, he's eating kosher, glat kosher. And he's not even eating to indulge. He's eating healthy, disciplined, dieting. But there's no sense of the divine. There's no sense of godliness. He's not eating l'shem shemayim. He's just eating because I'm hungry and I'm eating. I'm eating to be healthy. Why do you need to be healthy? He doesn't take it further because I need to serve God. I need strength to carry out my mission. I'm eating. As an end in itself. That's already klipa. It's already the other side. It's already disconnect, split off, a distortion. It's all about self-preservation. There's no connection of God. So it's already a lie. Because the truth is, nothing in this world exists without God. It, it, God is constantly creating everything. The Holy Spirit, divine energy, is constantly creating everything. Nothing has any independent existence. Even though it doesn't seem that way. We don't feel it. We don't realize. Everything in this world seems to be independent. Everything in this world seems to be motivated by one thing and one thing only. Its primary drive is self-preservation. There's no other purpose, no other drive, there's no other goal other than the Jew that has this spark and this divine essence that's driven by its primary goal, its primary drive is not self-preservation. Its primary drive and primary goal is to connect with God. Other than the Jew, everything in this world is motivated by self-preservation. What that self-preservation could mean, it can make and take on many forms. It can mean physical survival. It can mean, it can mean um, power, acquiring power. It can mean acquiring fame. It can even mean being religious. It can even mean being mystical and spiritual. Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. But it's all about self-preservation. Whatever the definition of self is, everyone has a different definition of self. That, that they hold precious. That's precious to them. That's worthwhile to them. For one person, it's just surviving, and that's self-preservation. He's happy. He has no greater ambitions. For another person, is to make a mark in this world. Everyone has a different definition. For another person, is to get to heaven. Everyone has a different definition of self. The eternal, eternal ego. So his ego can live on forever. Everyone has a a different definition of self. But ultimately, it's motivated by self-preservation. Self. With the exception of the Jew, who has that holy drive, that holy spark that's driven by... By, by God in. So, the moment a person is not connected, is not thinking about Hashem, is just living life as an, as an independent entity, as an independent being, life for the sake of living, health for the sake of health, without injecting any higher purpose, any higher thought, without thinking about Hashem. It's already a lie, a distortion. It's already clipped. The other side. It's a negative event. So if a person eats, but he doesn't eat l'shem shemayim, it's already a negative energy. It's a negative event. It's klipa and sitra achas. It just comes from the shell. Godliness is hidden, distorted, opaque, and it's the other side. Disconnect. It's not holy, it's not wholesome, it's not elevating, it's not uplifting. It's a negative energy. And the soul that's sensitive to it senses that neg- negative end. It's already a lie, a distortion. Because the truth is that there is no other reality but God. We're being recreated each and every moment. And therefore, 
the only purpose for anything that exists in this world ultimately is only God created it in order for whatever purpose God created if we tune into that purpose then that event becomes a holy event when you eat but you eat for the sake of Hashem then that eating becomes uplifting wholesome elevating event when you do business you do business L'shem Shemayim then all the activities that go into your business besides the fact that you're doing business in a kosher way in an honest way but everything that you do all your interactions become elevated become a holy experience so it's not only it's not only the mitzvot that become holy everything that we do becomes holy as we go about our daily life 24-7 the act of sleeping the act of eating everything that we do the act of relaxing everything that we do becomes injected with holiness the act of being wealthy it broadens a person's mind if it's done for the right intention in order to enable you to better serve God then that whole experience becomes a holy wholesome, uplifting, elevating experience if not then it's automatically klipa and sitrach that's the other side it's all about self-preservation, ego, I God has nothing to do with it and that's a lie that's a distortion. God has nothing to do with it. God is creating the world each and every moment. So the reality is that everything is totally nullified before God. There is nothing independent. There is no independent entity. But we don't feel it. We don't sense it. And when someone doesn't feel it, doesn't sense it, that by definition is already klipa and sitra akhra. The spark is there. It must be there. Otherwise it couldn't exist. But since we don't feel it, we don't sense it, we don't connect with it, it's covered up, it's hidden, therefore it's already a distortion or it's already a lie. And the spark, the holy spark, is an exile, so to speak. It's an exile within, a trapped an exile within this event, experience, or physical, physical object. Like the fruit that's covered up by the shell. He totally blacks and covers up and you don't see the fruit. So the spark is there, but you don't see it. So it receives its sustenance from the spark, but it receives its sustenance, as he will explain, and I'll explain in a moment, how it receives the sustenance. Continue. How Where it, else would it receive its vitality? Godliness and holiness is the source of life for every existing being. As it is written, you give life to them all. Nehemiah 9.6 the Alter Rebbe goes on to qualify his previous remark, stating that those beings which do not surrender themselves to Hashem receive their vitality only from a superficial, external level of godliness, and from this level too only when it descends degree by degree through numerous contractions of the life force. To return to the Alter Rebbe's words, the self-styled, separate being does not receive its vitality from the nimbiut, the inner aspect of holiness, from its very essence and core, but from its acharayim, its hind part, so to speak, to bestow from one's pinyut, literally one's face, means, as explained in chapter 22, to give with a pleasurable will and desire. Acharayim, literally, behind one's back, means to bestow without desire or pleasure out of some extenuating factor. 
The giver's attitude will be apparent in either case in his manner of giving. If one gives something to his enemy, for example, he will avert his face from him, for one's face represents his inner feelings. Since the giver's heart is not in his gift, he turns his face away, presenting his enemy with his back. Thus, the nimyut and acharayim in the sense of internal and external aspect, aspects of one's will are related to their literal meanings of face and rear. In our context, everything in the realm of holiness, whose existence and life Hashem desires, receives its life from the Pinim Yud of godliness, or the Klippot in which Hashem has no desire, since He created them only for the reasons given in the paragraphs introducing this chapter, receive their life from the Acharayim of godliness. So everything receives its life from godliness. But do you receive it from, from the inner, or do you receive it from the outer? And the human analogy is, you give someone with a smile, someone that you love, someone that you feel close with, and you want to give, and you have pleasure of giving. Then there's certain people you have to give, but it gives you no pleasure. You have to give, because it's a means to an end. It's not something that gives you pleasure something you even despise but you're doing it because it serves a greater purpose so you turn your face you don't want to face your enemy you can't stand giving them but you give them anyway because it serves a purpose so too God gives um, gives an abundance and he gives life and sustenance to evil to klipa to ego God despises God despises arrogance. God despises more than anything else. Arrogance. Egotism. When a person is so haughty and arrogant and selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and so taken by themselves, God actually despises it. And yet God sustains. That moment, while he, as he's despising it, he sustains it each and every moment. If he despises it so, why does he sustain it? Why is he creating? If God loves humility, and he loves genuineness, and he loves sincerity, why does God sustain a world which is so egotistical, which is the antithesis of everything that's godly and holy and refined and good? So God is sustaining it at the same time that he despises but the reason he sustains it is because of a higher purpose. In order to allow freedom of choice, God has to give that freedom of, has to give us that balance, that equal balance. That, so we have that struggle. So we can overcome that struggle, overcome the evil, and over, overcome the negative. So God sustains it, despises it, sustains it, and he turns his face, so to speak. You're throwing it behind your back. I don't want to look at you, but here, take. So it's not something that's sustainable. It's not something that's enduring. It's temporary. Until Mashiach comes. Until in this arena when we have freedom of choice and we have to struggle and there's good and evil and there's light and dark. So during this time period, Hashem, so to speak, holds His nose, turns away and throws from behind His back. Here, take. I give you life, I give you existence, I'm sustaining you, I'm nurturing you, I'm taking care of you, but I despise you. 
because you're not an end. You have no pleasure from you. The only pleasure is, the only purpose that you, f- you fulfill is that because of this, there's because of arrogance and haughtiness and ego, and arrogance is successful, and ego is successful. As a result, there's freedom of choice. A person has to have the wisdom to choose truth, to choose inwardness, genuineness, spirituality, godliness. And therefore, that, that's what gives it meaning. So without the struggle, without the freedom of choice, it would have no meaning. So therefore, God, that's the only reason why God sustains it. So He throws it from behind His back, despising it, and sustaining it only because of the purpose that it fulfills. And God only gives it the minimum that it needs. Why then do we find that arrogance and ego and evil prosper and are very successful? And that ultimately is really our fault. It's the Jews' fault because we nourish it, we feed it. Kalipa is like a blood sucker. It sucks out your blood. It needs your blood in order in order to, to be nourished. We nourish evil. If Adam would not sin, Adam and Chava, evil would have no force, no strength. When we do something wrong, and we choose the wrong thing, we nourish evil. We give it fresh vitality, fresh strength. If we were strong, we were courageous and wise, and we chose the right thing, evil would wither away and die. Because it would only have the nourishment that God gave it. God threw it behind his back, gave it a very limited amount of nourishment, and would be very weak. The reason why it's so robust and so vibrant and so healthy, it's because of we are nourishing. Every one of us is a microcosm. In our own personal lives, every choice that we make, every foolish choice that we make, adds new nourishment and vitality to evil, which is why the Yetzirah puts so much strength and energy in, in, in getting a Jew to sin, because and the greater the Jew, the greater the potential for holiness, the more valuable that sin is. Because when that Jew will sin, it will nourish evil to, to a great extent. The greater the person, the Talmud says, the greater the Yetzirah. The greater the potential for good, the greater the potential for mischief. So when that energy is misguided and misdirected, you can nourish and create tremendous havoc and, and um, so God gives evil only the minimal that he needs in order to fulfill his purpose in order that there should be freedom of choice he turns he doesn't even want to look evil in the face he despises evil but he throws behind his back and gives it its nourishment and sustains it temporarily till Mashiach comes during this time period when we have the struggle of good and evil. He doesn't give it more. He doesn't give it one iota more than is necessary. 
unless we feed it. If we feed the monster, we feed it and nourish it and nurture it, we value it, we give it credence, we're afraid of it, and we reckon with it, and we're taken in by it, and we fall for it, and we surrender to it, then we nourish it with fresh vitality and fresh, fresh energy. So when you give someone with your face, with a smile, that's holiness. Holiness God gives with a smile. Because that's what God finds pleasure for. That's what God desires. So when a person is holy, you give it with a smile. But when you hate something, you throw it from behind your back. And that's also, when, when God gives someone with a smile, holiness, in order to receive holiness, you have to be worthy. You have to be a vessel, you have to be a vehicle. Which is the difference if you receive your life sustenance from holiness, from the side of holiness, or if you receive your life sustenance from the other side. And that's the wisdom of a Jew's choice. A Jew would rather receive holiness, life, his life sustenance, and his blessing from holiness, although it's very limited. Because in holiness you have to earn it. You have to deserve it. You have to be worthy of it. You have to be a vessel. You have to be a vehicle. You have to be egoless. The more refined you are, the more egoless you are, the more, the deeper you are, you are, the more in touch you are with your neshama, the more you will draw down. That's the vessel, the vehicle to draw down the divine light and the divine blessing. So you have to earn your blessing. You have to be worthy of your blessing. It takes hard effort. It takes work. It takes sacrifice. And it comes limited because it's only limited according to the vessel that you create. But a, versus if you get, if you receive your sustenance from the other side, there is no cheshwan, there is no calculation. God just gives. He hates. He doesn't want to look at you in the face. He just throws and throws in abundance. Evil prospers. Throws in abundance. Beyond your worth, you're not worthy. But God gives in abundance. Worthless people prosper. Righteous people struggle. So a Jew can say to himself, why should I plug into holiness and try to lead a holy life and earn and be worthy and if God forbid I'm not worthy, automatically my, my vessel is smaller and I receive much less sustenance. It's too, it's too difficult. Isn't it easier the other way? Let me just live a life of abandon. Let me abandon myself to the other side and then I'll just receive without any calculation. I'll receive in abundance. But that's the wisdom of a Jew. I would rather take a limited amount, but amount something that comes from God's with a God's smile, God smiling to me, God giving giving it to me with pleasure, where it's holy, and it's wholesome, and it's good, versus getting a lot in abundance, but it's unholy, it's unwholesome, it's disconnected, it's split off, it's distorted, and the truth is ultimately it's limited, because look at all the mighty empires. They had abundance of might and power and fame and glory. All gone, disappeared. Well, the little Jew who always received with, from holiness, who always received what he deserved. And, we were, and if we didn't deserve, we were on the other end of the stick. But nevertheless, we're still here. We're here. This is forever. Because whatever is connected to holiness, whatever we receive with God's face, with God's smile, that's forever. That God gives with pleasure. So the Jew, God gives with pleasure. And He gives with pleasure. It's eternal. And the little that we have, we know that it's, God is giving it wholeheartedly. Smiling. 
with his, with his, God is giving it to us with pleasure and it's wholesome and it's eternal and it's good and it's holy and it's wonderful versus receiving an abundance but knowing it's temporary it's arbitrary it's temporary it's meaningless and it's for our own detriment it's self-destructive so that's the wisdom this limited form of life force reaches the clipo by descending degree by degree through myriads of levels in the chain-like descent of the worlds in the manner of cause and effect. The higher level is the cause for the lower level which emerges from it. However, in a descent which is a sequence of cause and effect, the effect, though lower, is always comparable to the cause. Such descents, no matter how numerous, would be insufficient to produce the low level of vitality bestowed upon clipo. This can be produced only by the descent of the vitality through Tzimtzum, as the Alta Rebbe now continues. The vitality descends also through many Tzimtzumim, or contractions, and this process diminishes the vitality to the point where it is incomparably lower than in its original state. So greatly diminished does the light and life force become, diminution after diminution, until it is able to become contracted and clothed in a manner of exile, meaning that instead of being surrendered to the divine life force, the object in which the vitality is clothed masters it, as, for example, a captive in exile is mastered by his captors. The vitality is thus in a state of exile within that object, which is, i.e., which considers itself, separate from holiness, giving it vitality and existence, causing that object to pass from non-existence to existence, so that it does not return to its original state of non-existence, as it was before it was created by the vitality clothed in it. In brief, all that is not surrendered to Hashem, but considers itself separate from Him, receives its vitality from the Acharayim of godliness by way of numerous descents and various contractions. The divine life force is concealed within it in a state of exile. Thus it belongs to the realm of Klippa. It is now clear why any thought, word, or action not directed toward serving Hashem, hence not surrendered to godliness, is a garment of the animal soul that derives from Kripa, even if that thought, word, or deed is not actually evil. So in order to sustain this Kripa, which has a sense of self and has no sense of the divine spark within it, at its very core and essence, so this divine energy has to be reduced and be reduced and then in such a state that it can go into exile. It could exist in exile in this object. Just like exile. When you're in exile, you can't express yourself. You're not free to express yourself. You're in exile. You're in prison. So this divine spark is in exile. It's not free to express itself. It's not free to reveal itself. It's imprisoned to the extent that the object doesn't sense any holiness, doesn't sense any godliness, doesn't sense any... any. All it senses is itself, the crust, the shell, the klipa. There's no sense of anything inner. There's zero sense of anything inward. And you go through its entire existence without even realizing or sensing that there's anything inward. All there is is ego, I, external. Nothing in. 
So the spark is there. It's creating, sustaining, animating this very object, and the object is totally oblivious of this spark. So the spark is trapped. It's in prison. It's underground. It can't show its head. It can't show itself. It can't reveal itself. And it's in Golos. It's an exile. It's tied up. It's bound. Uncom- uncomfortable. Because it's a holy spark. It's a divine spark. And yet, it's trapped. Creating, sustaining, and animating an object that totally denies godliness, totally oblivious of godliness, and is only aware of self. That's exile. It's a very painful place to be. You're not free. It's a lie. It's a distortion. The spark wants to scream out. Don't you realize there's a God and godliness? Totally oblivious. As if it's an independent reality. Existing on its own. There is no source. There is no creator. There is no God. There is no divine energy. I am here. Why am I here? I'm here because I'm here. I don't need a reason. I don't need a justification. I am because I am. Period. What's my purpose in life? Self-gratification. That's the end. I'm eating to be healthy. Why am I healthy? Just to be healthy. Just to continue to live and to exist. Self-gratification. Continue that I. Self-preservation. Zero sense of godliness. Oblivious to godliness. Oblivious to the reality of God. Oblivious to any, anything inward. It's all external. It's all skin deep. It's all superficial. It's all confusing the means with the end. Materialism is an end. The I is an end in itself. Not to serve Hashem as a higher purpose. Instead of realizing that I was only created only to serve God, there is no other reality but God, and I was created for no other purpose. There is nothing in my life that was created other than for the purpose of serving God. Instead, I'm eating, not indulging, but I'm not thinking about God. And this is already clip of And even a Jew is religious. If Judaism becomes a religion, religion is compartmentalized. Religion means it's a part of my life, an important part of my life. I have music in my life, I have dancing in my life, I have art in my life, I have business and I have religion. Maybe religion is the most important thing in my life. Maybe it takes up a good part of my time. But it's a part of my life. Religion is religion, art is art. Music is music, business is business, the home is the home, the shul is the shul. Each part is separate. That's klip and sitra that's already a distortion. That's not Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is, I was not created, I was created for no other purpose than to serve God. There's not a single aspect in my life that's not connected with God. Not 99.9% of my life, 100%. There's nothing. There's nothing in reality. There's nothing in this world. There's nothing in my personal life. It's not that there's, I serve God and I have my private life. And I go on vacation. So I'll serve God 18 hours a day and then the last six hours, that's for me. That whole sense, that whole notion is a distortion. There is no other reality with God. 
The reason why everything was created and being created this very moment. God is creating each and every moment for one purpose and one purpose only. It's for a godly purpose. And I have to reveal what that godly purpose is. So everything that I do has to be with the theme and the intent to serve God. If I do anything in my life, not let alone if I do something wrong that God hates and despises and asks me not to do. That's a rebellion. But I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm eating glut kosher. I'm worrying about my business in the kosher way. But I'm not thinking about God. I'm thinking about self-preservation. I'm thinking about uh, the I. And I just want to be healthy. I'm not thinking I want to be healthy in order to serve God. I'm, not, I'm leaving God out of the picture. It's already a distortion. It's already a lie. Because what you're saying is that God is not part of it. Well, in reality, the fact is that God is creating each and every moment. So the spark, the divine energy, is in exile. Is hidden. Buried. Deep down. In the deepest bunker. Buried, hidden, forgotten, concealed, imprisoned. In the dungeon. Totally covered up. A lie. A distortion. A grotesque lie. A grotesque distortion. The biggest lie... The biggest distortion. Being, self, preservation, ego, I, without any connection with Hashem, creativity, without any connection with God. That's the biggest lie and distortion of all. So at that moment, you're, you're on the other side. When a person eats and doesn't think for the sake of Hashem, you're on the other side. You're receiving your life and sustenance not from holiness, not from Hashem's smiling face. You're not thinking about Hashem. Because it's like a, a relationship. Relationship is total. And Hashem wants every part of you. Not 99%. He wants 100%. Every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. Total attention. Can't have a relationship otherwise. Relationship is only when it's 100% tension. A jealous God. Of course, jealous, because it's 100%. Not sharing you with anyone or anything. Total focus, 100% focus, 100% concentration, presence. So it's not compartmentalized. The moment. Judaism becomes 99.9%. It becomes compartmentalized. It's already a distortion. That's what we call religion. That's not Judaism. Judaism is total. It's your very being, your very essence. And it permeates every aspect of your life. Through and through. It's emes. A total reality. Aleph, mem, tough. Through and through. Beginning, middle, and end. There isn't a single part of me that's not affected. It's not engaged mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, practically, me, others, my environment. It's a total reality. Otherwise, it's not Kedusha, it's not holiness. It's the nature of holiness, the nature of Hashem. Hashem is an absolute reality. So the nature of Hashem is it's an absolute engagement. There's no moderation. It's a total reality. Either it is or it isn't. 
There's no compartmentalization. Well, I'm this and I'm that. A little this, a little that. Neither this nor that. Everything you're saying, for me, that's not what it is. I mean, that's... That's not what is. What is, is for me, is not, not what you're saying. It's like, it's separate. It's, I come here, it's predominant. I go get on the bus now, it's not the way it is. You understand what I'm saying? Well, good news is the good news is that for our godly soul, yeah. our Jewish soul, it That's is. The way it is. That's the way it is. Whether we know it or not, it's for our godly soul that is. <coughs> Everything else isn't. <laughs> what you think isn't for the godly soul that isn't. This is. This is reality. No, it's not that I don't want it to be like that. We all want. But it's not like that well, for me. That's what we all have to aspire to. And that's why we'll all live to 180, because <laughs> in order to accomplish this, we need 120. For us, I think we'll need at least 180 years. <laughs> oh, just to accomplish it. <laughs> just to get there, to really be there. But you understand what I'm trying to, I'm trying to say? Of course. We discuss this all the time. But the fact, the fact that we know it's a problem, and the fact that we aspire to it, that alone is already revolutionary. That alone is already... Yeah, but uh, how do you turn it on at the time, at the moment you need it? At the time that you really... It should be like that when you're suffering or having a problem. Not... How do you turn it on? How do you become aware of it at that... At all times? Learning chapter 6 in the time. I think we come here because we, even though the, Jew, the Jewish soul experiences it, we want to experience it, right? Well, to totally experience it, obviously either you're a tzaddik, or certain moments when we get glimpses of it, like on holidays, Yom Kippur, special times, special <coughs> moments in our lives. When Mashiach will come, we'll all experience right. it. But at least, intellectually, at least we can be aware of it. And at least we can practically try to live our lives consistently, accordingly. Where Torah mitzvot is not just something that we do. It's not just a ritual, a custom, something that we do, an activity, an event. It, it's, it's life. Torah's life, a mitzvah's life. At least we know, we are aware, this is the reality, this is the way our godly soul experiences it. It's not just a ritual, a custom, it's reality. It's living, it's breathing, it's, 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 it's alive, it's vibrant, it's real, it's a connection, it's a total connection. So as long as we're aware of it, and we live our life that way, and we, and we view a mitzvah as something precious, as something part of life, not just another ritual, a custom, a burden, something we have to, another obligation that we have to pay up, another due in life that we have to get rid of, but it becomes a part of life. I think that, you know, that Hashem only asks of us what we can. You know, as long as we study Hasidus, and we study about it, and we learn about it, 
which is like a depth charge. It hits home, it resonates, it touches our deepest place inside of us, it touches the deepest parts of our neshama, because it's talking the language of the neshama. This is the language of the neshama. This is how our neshama experiences Judaism. It's not a ritual, it's not custom, it's not compartmentalized, it's not religion. It's core, it's essence, it's, it's, it's the air we breathe, it's life, it's vibrant, it's dynamic, it's all-encompassing, it's real, it's relevant, it's personal, it's intimate, it's powerful, it's joyous, it's thrilling, it's, it's all of the above. Totally engaging. This is the way that the godly soul experiences it. Just because we, on a conscious level, doesn't, don't experience it that way, doesn't change reality. So it's good to even be aware that there is this reality. There's a reality that's beyond our conscious reality. And that's the, that's the true reality. Thank God we're not who we think we are. <laughs> that would be very pathetic, sad. That's all, that's all there was to us. Conscious part, the part that we know, or think we know. There's a whole reality beneath the surface that we're dimly aware of. It doesn't change the reality. Now, the, whole, the whole thing is to connect to that. Connect. So firstly, by being aware of it. You can be sitting on, on, a, on a treasure chest of gold and diamonds. If the light is off, what good does it do? You'd switch on the light. At least I know there's a treasure chest. So it may be locked, but I know that there's a treasure chest. I know the diamonds are there. So maybe I don't know how to access my subconscious. I don't know how to... But I know it's there. That alone is already exciting. To know that you have in your possession. In your possession. It's yours. That you have a treasure chest. Something to aspire to. Something to look forward to. Something that we're just waiting for the key to open. Yeah, but it's frustrating if, you, if you're even aware and you can't find the key. Well, maybe, maybe the key is in our hands. More than we know it. Because when you do a mitzvah, you're, you're, you're activating, you're igniting that spark. Sometimes we'll feel it, sometimes maybe we'll feel it down the road, but the reality is there. So the trick is to do more mitzvahs so that sooner or later <laughs> it's going to become the reality. Do more mitzvahs, give more tzedakah, be kinder, study more Torah, study more chassidus. That's the trick, all of the above. They say the person drinks a lot of vodka will become drunk. The person who has a lot of money will become crazy. The person who will study a lot of chassidus will become a godly person. The question is, we see people drink a lot of vodka and don't get drunk. We see people have a lot of money and they're not crazy. We see people study a lot of chassidus and they're not godly. So the answer is, let them drink a little more. <laughs> let them become a little wealthier. Let them learn a little more chassidus. <laughs> No. Until, you reach the Until you reach the point. So, and there's no side effects when you study more chassidus. There's no side effects. It's all good. So you don't have to be worried. Maybe I'm taking too much of a good thing. It's the more the merrier. The more Torah you learn, the more chassidus you learn, the more tzedakah you give, the more mitzvahs you do, the more favors you do your your fellow, the better it is. The healthier it is. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.